Welcome to a breath of fresh earth, taking the commitment to a clean environment to the next level. Your host, Rick Friedman, will crown the climate hero and villain of the week, along with discussing worldwide environmental issues, showcasing new products designed with the longevity of our planet in mind, and putting the spotlight on the individuals making a big impact in helping the climate and pollution crisis through social media. Now, your host, Rick Friedman. Hello, everyone. Thanks for clicking on. Welcome to episode 35. Seems like just yesterday I was talking to my friends at a restaurant about doing a podcast. That was back in February of 20, before coronavirus. And now we're starting episode 35. That's pretty cool. All right. So last week I heard the phrase heat dome being used to describe the heat conditions in the northwest part of the United States and Canada. But I didn't really know what a heat dome was. I'd heard about it, just never really did too much research. Heat domes happen when strong, high-pressure atmospheric conditions combined with influences from La Nina, creating huge areas of sweltering heat that get trapped underneath high-pressure domes. Heat dome. A team of scientists found the main cause was a strong change in ocean temperatures from west to east in the tropical Pacific Ocean during the preceding winter. Nearly 500 people died from record-breaking temperatures in Canada's westernmost province. British Columbia's chief coroner said that 719 sudden and unexpected deaths had been reported over that time, triple the number during a similar period in a typical year. It'll probably take months to determine exactly how those people died, but there's not much doubt that the heat played a significant role in the surge in fatalities, especially among the older people. Many of the deaths were people living alone in private residences with minimum ventilation. In those areas, not every house has, most houses don't even have air conditioning. Temperatures are never that hot that people would be worried about an older person living alone in a hot, sweltering apartment. I often talk about climate change and how when bad things happen in other places, what I mean is that if we can't see it or smell it or touch it, it doesn't seem like it's really part of our problem. Those days are long gone. Do you like to eat fresh berries in the summer? I do. Blueberries from Oregon to British Columbia are being baked on the bush. Raspberries, too. Growers are calling the heat damage catastrophic. Most West Coast blueberry growers were just getting ready to harvest when the heat dome hit last month. The berries got soft, but not ripe. Some were burned from the sun. The still green berries now have brown seeds inside, indicating they are sun damaged and might fall off the bush or just stop growing. That's terrible news to an industry that produces more than 80% of the nation's blueberries from July through September. Imagine you wait all year for that, and then one crazy five- or six-day heat dome comes in and ruins your whole your whole crop. Growers warn it could lead to a nationwide shortage later this summer. Much of this year's Northwest raspberry and blackberry crops are doomed just to be juice. Tastes good, but juice doesn't pay growers as much. Northwest raspberry growers were just getting ready to pick the crop when the heap dome arrived. Now those berries are mostly dehydrated, or they just roasted right on the vine. As much as 90% of the crop could be damaged. Oregon blackberries are damaged too. They shriveled up. There isn't a lot of moisture left in it anymore. Can't make a living selling shriveled up berries. That reminds me of that Billy Joel song, Down Easter Alexa, from his album Stormfront. Part of the lyrics of the song are like, There's no luck in sword fishing here. I was a bayman like my father before. Can't make a living as a bayman anymore. There ain't much future for a man who works the sea. I'll add another line. I guess there ain't much future for a man who works the land when Portland, Oregon hits 116 degrees. What did the heat do to clams? An estimated... One billion small creatures, including mussels, clams, and snails, died during the heat wave in the Salish Sea. Try saying that five times fast. 
4,000 miles ashore. Think of a muscle on the shore like a toddler that you leave alone in the car. Of course, that's a horrible idea. You would never do that. But the point is, they're stuck in the car until a parent comes back, or in this case, until the tide comes in. There's not much they can do. They just kind of sit there. They're at the mercy of the environment. During the heat wave, it just got so hot there was nothing they could do. Mussels can withstand high temperatures. They hold water inside their shell and close up on land when exposed by the tides. They grow in beds, which provides a thermal buffer. But the record heat was just too much. The heat presented the perfect storm, a, low t- a very low tide, in the afternoon in the Straits of Georgia that happened to coincide with the hottest part of the day, exposing the sea animals to the worst of the extreme heat. be like putting me out in the sun in the summer without any sunscreen. That'd be a bad idea. Heat stress is likely what caused the clams to pop open, leaving the clams' meat exposed and essentially baked them right where they were. We hear about these freak storms and heat domes, and we hear people say, it's a one-in-a-hundred-year thing. It's a one-in-a-five-hundred-year flood. Those aren't happening once every 500 years or once every 100 years. They're happening frequently, and they're going to keep happening until we can fix it, which is going to take a long time. Now it's time for the Climate Villain of the Week. It's so easy to keep choosing ExxonMobil as the Villain of the Week, but I promise this time they really deserve it. You may have heard an Exxon company lobbyist was secretly recorded by a reporter working for Greenpeace. The guy's name is Keith McCoy. He was speaking about the efforts of the company to weaken climate policies from the Biden administration. Of course, ExxonMobil apologized. We don't really believe that. Lobbyist comments show ExxonMobil has been working against climate policies against Joe Biden's administration right from the start. They only say they're going to support a carbon tax because they know it's never going to happen. Well, they don't think it'll ever happen. The companies worked with shadow groups, whoever they are. They're in the shadows. ExxonMobil chairman said McCoy's comments don't represent his company's views. I love this part. We condemn the statements and are deeply apologetic for them, including comments regarding interactions with elected officials. Yeah, right. They really apologize. They've been working tirelessly with every administration to keep their profits. ExxonMobil says it supports the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement and is committed to addressing climate change. I don't believe that either. Woods, the uh, CEO, said, The comments are entirely insensitive with the way we expect our people to conduct themselves. He's a lobbyist for the company. That's exactly how they expect them to conduct themselves. And McCoy wrote, I'm deeply embarrassed by my comments and that I allowed myself to fall for Greenpeace's deception. My statements clearly do not represent ExxonMobil's positions on important public policy issues. I don't understand that. He's deeply embarrassed that he got caught. That's what he's deeply embarrassed about. And why is he blaming Greenpeace? So sick of all this Exxon BS. If you remember, a few episodes ago, we talked about some good news about ExxonMobil, that they had new board members that were focused on climate change. But Exxon tries to put a a good public image out. But we know it's not true. They continue to block necessary climate action in order to avoid accountability. This has been going on for 30, 40 years. Nothing's going to change. They lie about climate science. They lie about their products' roles in the climate crisis. They lie about their commitment to the solutions. They lie to protect their bottom line with no regards to the catastrophic damage their products continue to do to the planet and the people. A big boo to ExxonMobil again. Hate you guys. That's not enough. Boo them again. Let them hear you in the back. Come on, everybody. All over the world. A great big boo.
Let me hear you in Ohio. I can't hear you. Louder. Come on, do it. Louder. It's time for the Climate Hero of the Week. If you remember last year's show about the Biomimicry Institute, biomimicry is the practice of looking for nature for inspiration to solve design problems in a regenerative way. And every year, the Institute gives an award called the Ray of Hope Heroes. It's one of my favorite awards given every year. This year, the top award goes to Spintex, a spider-inspired silk company. They've been awarded the $100,000 prize. Their company mimics how a spider spins silk at room temperature. And Spintex creates high-performance, sustainable textiles that are 1,000 times more efficient than the equivalent synthetic fiber. Over the course of millions of years, spiders have evolved, and they create one of the world's strongest and most adaptable materials, spider silk. The secret to a spider's ability to create silk is within their spinnerets, specialized organs that turn the liquid silk gel in their abdomens into solid thread. After years of research, folks at Spintex managed to mimic that ability. The company has created a process to spin textile fibers from a liquid gel at room temperature with water and biodegradable textile fibers as the only outputs. It would only be natural to have Spider-Man be your spokesperson. The ocean is on fire. Well, the ocean was on fire. A couple weekends ago, I don't know if you guys saw the fire on the surface of Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. It looked like something right out of a disaster movie, except it was real. There was no special effects. It was crazy. There was a big orange ball of fire in the ocean, burning for, burned for about five hours. Mexico's state-owned oil company, Pemex, had a problem with a pipeline. Gee, another pipeline. Who would ever think that? It was about five or six years ago they had a spill right near there, 90,000 gallons. Supposedly, nothing spilled. Not that anybody would ever believe that, but that's what they said. But if you look up uh, the fire, it was uh, really frightening to watch. Two days later, there was a problem off the Caspian Sea in Azerbaijan, about six miles from the Umid gas field. Their state-owned oil company was not certain what caused an explosion, but they said it was from a mud volcano. Mud volcanoes, I've never even heard of that. See, I get to learn so much when I look up things to talk about on this podcast. Mud volcanoes are not actually volcanoes. They don't produce lava. They typically shoot out a flurry of mud, hot water, and gas. If the mud volcano is close to an active hydrocarbon system, they erupt oil and natural gas, which ignites when lit. I haven't reviewed a movie in a while, so let's go back to 2009 and talk about The Age of Stupid, a British documentary film directed by Franny Armstrong. The film is a drama documentary animation about a man living alone in a devastated world of 2055 watching archival film and asking, why didn't we stop climate change when we had the chance? The film is set in 2055 in a world ravaged by catastrophic climate change. An unnamed archivist, played by Pete Possewhite, is entrusted with the safekeeping of humanity's surviving store of art and knowledge. He sits alone 800 miles north of Norway, which is kind of funny because in episode 26, I talked about the seed vault in Norway. The archivist watches footage from back when we could have saved mankind, trying to figure out where it all went wrong. I was watching the movie the other day and thinking the same damn thing and wondering if we have a chance to save ourselves. 
The movie has a 7.0 rating on IMDb and a 73 out of 100 on Rotten Tomatoes. I didn't think it was a great movie, but it was one of the first movies to talk about the complete collapse of mankind. You can watch the movie for free on Tubi. It's sad to see how little progress we've made since that movie was released. Director Fanny Armstrong had an interesting take on climate change, and I have to admit, I kind of feel exactly like she does. She said, quote, I just believe if you're not fighting against climate change and you're not doing a job like a teacher or a doctor that's improving the world, then you're wasting your life, unquote. Way to go, Fanny. I feel your pain. You didn't come here to be a hero. Ah, but you're wrong, mister. That's exactly why I came here, to be a hero and inspire heroes. Here's your social media minute. Check them out after the show. I talk about kids doing amazing things for the future, and rightly so, like John Paul Jose from India, 22-year-old climate activist, writer, and global peace ambassador. John Paul provides commentary on our environmental crisis through an Indian lens, from discussions on the impacts of India's iconic forests and trees to examinations on the connections between climate action and sustainable development, water, food, security, and more. You can follow John Paul on Twitter at JohnPaulJOS and Instagram John Paul JOS. But it's not just kids that are changing the world. Here's two adults doing their part. Jess Purcell at Thoughtful Fully Sustainable is a chemistry teacher turned stay-at-home parent who is passionate about explaining the science behind sustainable living. She's the creator of Sustainability Science Sunday, a weekly Instagram series of simple sustainability science experiments that can be done at home. Jess lives in central Pennsylvania with her husband, two kids, and two cats. You can also find her on YouTube. And Nash Garak at Defying Space. Nash is a writer, content creator, and consultant based in London, England. She began documenting her experience living in a 35-square-meter attic flat with her partner and son as a way to show how sustainability and minimalism could work hand-in-hand in a small space. Nash has turned her specialized knowledge of zero waste and minimalism into a popular podcast. How to Be a Minimalist, The Sustainable Way, was released on iTunes in February of 20. That's when this show started. So check it out. Her podcast forms part of a greater project, which will include an online course and a book. Head to her website for more information. Well, I went past the one-minute mark again. I might have to change the title of this segment. Keep it locked right here. Last year, I ranted about Coca-Cola being responsible for more plastic in the world than anybody else. There are plastics everywhere. And if you're a regular listener, thank you very much, you might recall my respect for a company called The Ocean Cleanup, who I gave my 2020 award to the company that's doing the best job of pulling plastic out of the ocean and rivers. Gotta give some love to Four Ocean and Five Gyres, two of my favorites. But I went with Boyan Slot and his company, Ocean Cleanup. Congrats again to 26-year-old Boyan and his team. In episode 17, we featured the Ocean Cleanup. Slot built the Interceptor to clean rivers. The Interceptor is the first scalable solution to prevent plastic from entering the world's oceans from rivers. It's 100% solar-powered and is capable of operating in the majority of the world's most polluted rivers. Think of it as a floating barge scooping up plastic debris while it takes a leisurely ride down the river. But here's the surprise announcement that came across the newswire. The Ocean Cleanup and Coca-Cola are partnering. During the next 18 months, the partnership will facilitate the deployment of interceptors in 15 rivers around the world and accelerate cleanup. Well, that's outstanding. Ocean plastic pollution has become a global crisis. The ocean cleanup is always searching for ways to speed up the rollout of its interventions, and this is going to be great. 
The Ocean Cleanup is a small organization, so scaling up to a thousand rivers in the next few years would take a significant amount of time. So partnering is key. Here's what James Quincy said. He's the chairman and CEO of Coca-Cola. As a global business, we are working to ensure that all the material we use in our packaging is collected and recycled so that none of it ends up as waste. We support the Ocean Cleanup team and technologies that are working to protect ocean ecosystems in the journey to safeguard our waterways. Well, we'll see. Uh, does he mean it? Who the heck knows? But if they want to help clean up the rivers before the plastic makes it its way into the ocean, I'm all for that. I don't care who gets the credit. They can all take credit. doesn't matter. Single-use plastic is still a bad idea, so let's allow them a couple of feel-good moments to put on their movie trailers and commercials, and in the meantime, the ocean will be a little cleaner. That's the perfect segue into the last segment of the show when I want to talk about the plastic tracker app from the previously mentioned Ocean Cleanup. It's a cool tool that you can uh, plot in your address or anywhere in the world and see where a piece of plastic goes, what is the likelihood that it ends up in the ocean. I tried it for my house in Cleveland, and although the odds were kind of low, um, it still showed that the plastic could go into Lake Erie, north on the St. Lawrence Seaway. Kind of an unfortunate name for a body of water, don't you think? As in, this way to the sea, Mr. Garbage? Then my plastic heads to the ocean via the Gulf of St. Lawrence and into the Atlantic Ocean, where it spins around in the North Atlantic Garbage Patch, possibly reaching as far south as the Bahamas before circling back in the Atlantic for the foreseeable future. In the next 20 years, my little piece of plastic could travel more than 68,000 miles. My plastic has a smaller chance of ending up in the ocean than a piece from a place like Amsterdam, where the likelihood of the plastic reaching the Norwegian Sea is high, and from there the plastic will likely end up lost in the Arctic. Maybe Santa Claus could find it and repurpose it as a gift for a little boy or girl. Well, this seems like a good place to end episode 35. Thanks to the crew at Alitu for working the soundboard on all my episodes. Thanks to the special effects team. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. Until next time, good night, Galileo. Thanks for listening to A Breath of Fresh Earth with your host, Rick Friedman. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you're the first to hear new episodes. If you want to nominate someone for Climate Hero of the Week, send it to Rick at the link below. This has been A Breath of Fresh Earth. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. 